0: Good morning, brethren. I have the privilege of being with you once again and to open up God's word. And so please turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter, chapter 3. We'll begin reading. In verse 14, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you yet with gentleness and reverence. Would you join me in prayer once again? Our God, we bow before you today, and we ask that you would come and that you would give help in this hour. Lord, sin abounds, and the love of many is growing cold, and we pray that you would come and do a work in our midst this morning. Mm -hmm. Speak to us, teach us from your word, speak graciously, speak wisely, and minister to your people. We ask that you would bless speaker and hearer alike, that you would fill us with your spirit, and that you would help us to understand and to respond. We ask for faith, and we ask for grace. In Christ's name, amen. Hope makes the world go around. It's been said that if it wasn't for hope, nothing would happen. Uh, Who would venture to start a business? Who would start a family? Who would do anything at all if it wasn't for the prospect of a better future, of a better outcome for yourself? Hope makes the world go around. And we find here the Apostle Peter addressing These churches in Asia Minor writing to the elect exiles who were experiencing something of severe persecution, it seems, uh, from the very people that they interacted with on a daily basis. We have servants being oppressed by their masters, wives oppressed by unbelieving husbands, families oppressed by unbelieving neighbors. And so the apostle Peter sets out this living hope for them in the very opening words of this book a hope that propels them into holy conduct into a virtue it lifts them up out of these trials and inspires them to be as he says zealous for what is good to live virtuously in other words but there was a cruel irony if you will in living virtuously because though it pleased god it greatly displeased others and there was intimidation and slander by those who would accuse these believers of practicing wickedness. And it seemed for them, no good deed goes unpunished. As their good behavior, uh, as they lived righteously, it was rewarded with malice and with reviling. And some of them, no doubt, were feeling discouraged. They were feeling like maybe instead they would choose the path of least resistance. And it's in that context that Peter directs them to a vital source of grace. Suffering may be inevitable, but how can they endure suffering with godliness? And to answer that, he urges them to a singular condition of the heart. And that's what I draw our attention to today in 1 Peter 3.15. It's a heart full of Christ, and it's a heart that expresses itself. And so we will take this up, uh, the first point there, a heart full of Christ, by looking at how to sanctify Christ, and then who is Lord of your heart, and then that heart expresses itself in three particular ways, and we'll take them up um, accordingly. But first, let's just look at this main point of a heart full of Christ, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. He says, "Now." To look at the language here and and begin to approach this, help us to understand it. There are only two main verbs in Peter's instruction here. And the one we read, the other we didn't. Two things to do in his sentence. And that is to sanctify and later in verse 15, um, sorry, in 16, to have a good conscience. Sanctify, have a good conscience. So it's not immediately clear as we read in our English versions, be ready, make a defense, they are not verbs. They, they add color to whatever it, it is that we do by sanctifying, and we'll consider that later on. But the main thing for us is to sanctify. Now, sanctification, this is one of the great doctrines of the Christian faith, and we can think of it simply as growing in grace, and our, our confession describes it as something that stems from our union with Christ. It is from having a new heart and a new spirit that there's a warfare created. There's flesh and spirit that are at war. There's a battleground. And the spirit, through Christ, gives us strength so that we can overcome our our corrupt nature. We can perfect holiness in the fear of God. And Christ sanctifies us. He makes us more and more practically holy as we go through life so how then do we sanctify christ is that even possible if we think of who christ is in all his infinite perfections it's not possible on the one hand we think of christ as one who is perfectly holy already otherwise he is not a fitting savior for us he is righteous he is full of virtue he is all wise and so it'd be like for us trying to polish the mirror on the James Webb space telescope or adding paint strokes to the, the, uh, the Mona Lisa uh, portrait. We'd do more harm than good, to say the least. It would, it would even be a brazen, arrogant thing to do to think that we could clean those up or add something that was not there. But on the other hand, this isn't what the apostle means, to sanctify Christ. Make him more holy. We're to sanctify Christ, look at it, in your hearts. In our hearts, because this is about heart conditioning. We're arming ourselves not only with a way of thinking so that we might endure, but with a way of being, a condition of the heart that prepares us to suffer in a godly way. And so this word sanctify, It's also translated, I'm reading from the New American Standard, the ESV says to honor as holy. Again, it's one word. We're honoring Christ as holy, or we're revering him. And so Peter is likely quoting here and referencing Isaiah 8.13. So turn back to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 8. And verse 13. Isaiah says in 8.13, It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Then he will become a sanctuary. And even before in verse 12, you are not to say, it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people cause conspiracy, and you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. That's the first part in verse 14 of our passage that Peter is quoting. And so this is about giving due honor to Christ in our hearts. We recognize his holiness. We recognize his authority and greatness, and we respond appropriately. And when Jesus gives us the model prayer in Matthew 6 he says our father who is in heaven hallowed be thy name hallowed is the same word it's the same reverence it is recognizing the authority and greatness of God bowing down to him and submitting to him in godly fear and so sanctifying is we sanctify Christ in our hearts by giving first place now, husbands, if you want to honor your wives with, with a special gift for her birthday or an anniversary gift, you shouldn't settle, I hope you don't settle, for a dollar store trinket. You want to give her better gifts than you would even give anyone else. And so that might require planning, saving up, um, to, find, to and, and just searching, shopping, because you only want the prettiest, the most comfortable, the highest quality Gifts, because that's what's most suitable for the most important person in your life. And to sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart is not to settle for giving him discount devotion. You seek to honor him with the fullest, warmest, highest expressions of love and devotion and to recognize no greater authority in your life than him. It's a question of who you will obey. Will you bow down to intimidations and temptations? No, you owe your immediate obedience first to the Lord. You give Him first place. Just like God set apart the seventh day at creation, He sanctified it and set it apart for rest. So you are to set apart your own heart and dedicate it to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. He is to have first place. In everything, Colossians, Paul says that Christ is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything, that he might be preeminent in all things. And so, particularly in our heart, you obey Christ preeminently, you trust him more than anyone, you prefer him to everything you love him with all your heart and peter in our passage even chooses lord to be the first word wor- excuse me he chooses lord to be the first word in this sentence even to emphasize this point it would seem you sanctify christ as lord in your heart by giving him first place but there's another aspect to sanctifying and that is purification If we think back to the days of the tabernacle, it was a holy place. It was set apart for worship unto God, for bringing sacrifices where God would dwell with his people. And no unclean animal was allowed on the altar. And no man was allowed to enter who did not purify himself. You can look in Numbers uh, chapter 19 to see this regulation. Numbers chapter 19, verse 20, it says, But the man who is unclean and does not purify himself from uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water for impurity has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. And therefore, we can also think of sanctifying in terms of purifying Let nothing defile, not the tabernacle, not the altar, but the temple of your heart. This is a call to pick up a broom and sweep, if you will, to sweep out the temple of your heart that Christ might fill it, to clean yourself out as a vessel for Christ. First John says in chapter three, verse three, and everyone who has this hope fixed on Christ purifies himself just as he is pure and so the idea is to cast out everything that displeases God that does not accord with God's will reject anything that caused the nails to be driven through Christ's hands resist anything that might grieve his spirit cast out all clutter from your heart whether competing loves of idols or all intimidating fears like the fear of man certainly all sin and all self-love, there's no room for those things in the heart of a Christian. So cleanse them out, purify your heart, and sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Because again, for Peter, the fundamental issue is Christ in the heart. His counsel is not all of this oppression, all of this intimidation, that is horrible and wicked, and you need to get out of there asap go run to somewhere where you're you're not experiencing this. No, he doesn't say, uh, don't listen to them. You're doing great. Just keep on. Just you be you. Be yourself. No, he says, you have some spiritual exercising to do because you're being strained. A steady diet of Christ, this daily exercise of conditioning your heart will get you safely through this trial. And I might even say at the risk of oversimplifying the effect is, get your heart right and leave the rest to God. Peter's concern is a godly fear. It's not just doctrines that enter the head, but a Christ who fills our hearts. And that's the source of, uh, the, or excuse me, the, the source of all of our desires and passions and affections, our purposes, our motivations, should all be in him, that we might say with the psalmist. All my fountains are in him. All the springs of life that I have, all my hope is in Christ. And so the question for us is, is Christ Lord of your heart? Some people think they're Christians because they have Christ as their truth. They agree with what he says. They accept the gospel message. But they don't have Christ controlling the center of their life. And that was me for instance you say you believe the bible but do you excuse your sin and call it just my personality or you follow christ but does he rein in your emotions or do they just kick wildly do your attitudes say christ is lord or do they say well that wasn't fair and why should i even try and i deserve better you know these these uh Sometimes we see end-of-year summaries by uh, Google, for instance, that might have a list of the most commonly searched for terms around the world. Well, is Jesus Lord? Well, look at your heart history. What's the most commonly searched for uh, terms of your heart? What do you long for most? Whose voice did you listen to most often? And there's an urgency about this because Peter says later, arm yourselves with this same way of thinking. And there's a similar call here, a call to sanctify Christ in your hearts. There's no time to waste. Before these threats press on you any further, do it now and do it effectively. Like Proverbs says, keep your heart with what? All diligence. Keep your heart with all diligence. Put Christ always in your thoughts and take care that every thought of him is Holy and reverent and sacred. After all, Christ is Lord. He is Almighty God. The universe is His dominion, but so is your heart. God rules over black holes and horse head nebulas, and He commands stars that could swallow a million of our, our suns. And every one of those elements honors Him and yields to His commands and respects His orders. He created them and he commands them now. And when God tells you what to do, when he condescends to speak to our hearts and invites us to blessing and peace, do we think it a light thing to delay, to ignore, to disobey? Christ is worthy of all honor and your heart is his dominion or you're not a Christian. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And so see, by way of application, just at this point, see how vital it is to guard your heart. Because if we're not sanctifying Christ as Lord in our hearts, then who is Lord? For some it is money, it's lust, it's power, chaos, indifference, the devil himself. If we're not guarding, we permit other things to invade, and the results are disastrous. Here, the threat was being hampered by the fear of man, or we cave to the pressures of circumstances and worldly wisdom. We obey our bellies, but to have a heart in bondage to Christ means we're free from all others. We're not subject of any other pressure the foundation of Christian religion is honoring Christ, and only a Christian does that. whether it's in the worst of times, like here in First uh, Peter, amidst the suffering and slander and everyone hating you for doing what is good, or even in the best of times when everything is going well, our hearts are no less contended. And it's like Deuteronomy eight warns. Turn in Deuteronomy eight verse 11. the vital need to guard our hearts, even in the best of times. Deuteronomy 8 verse 11 says, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out from the house of slavery. Be careful to guard your heart in the worst of times or even in the best of times. And notice the apostles' uh, emphasis on a change of heart, not a change of circumstances. Sometimes afflictions move quickly from possible And on the horizon to in your midst and unbearable. And we can tend to have an immediate reaction of make it stop. And immediately our our prayers get on repeat. Lord, please take this away. Please take this away. And there's nothing wrong with praying that way. We have the the witness, the uh, example of the Apostle Paul who prayed three times that the Lord would remove the thorn in his flesh. But if that's all we pray, it indicates that we've lost focus. You're praying, take this away, but have you acknowledge that it's the Lord who has just given this to you. He's Lord of this trial. He's ordered it to start, and He's predestined the time it will end, and it won't be one second more than is necessary. But what does He have for you now? It's the importance of the condition of your heart and not the circumstances. There is a greater evil than to suffer, and that's to sin. If our suffering continues to the end of our lives, it still cannot close the doors of heaven. But if we do not keep our hearts full of Christ, then we could perish in our sins. And it's like Peter writes later in chapter 4, verse 19, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God, this isn't random, this is appointed by God according to the will of God, they are to entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Leave your circumstances to God. Leave your future to God. He will take care of your well-being. You just take care of being virtuous right now. And you may be totally incapable of affecting your circumstances, but you can always sanctify your hearts. It's like telling my children, you can't, you can't uh, control what other people do, but you can control how you react and what, what you are saying and feeling. And so who controls your suffering? Not them, not those that are intimidating you, not your oppressors, Peter says. Who controls your fate? Your wealth, your strength, the length of the trial, there is only one Lord. And so if you're going to be anxious about anything, be anxious to enshrine Jesus Christ in your hearts and give him due honor and obedience. And when your life is centered in Christ, you will be able to respond properly to life's difficulties and not anxious to change them. So how can saints condition themselves to suffer in a godly way? They have to possess a heart filled with Christ. <laughs> now, this heart um, expresses itself in three ways that I want to draw your attention to. And it's how this manifests in the life of a believer. And so we'll look at rejecting fear, defending hope, and being ready. First, rejecting fear. Peter says, Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. So this is the negative side of the command uh, to hearts. It's have no fear. Because, of course, fear is what prompted this need for instruction. And they're intimidated. People of social influence might threaten to cut them off from community life. Powerful men with authority might threaten them with arrest, imprisonment, or worse. Family members might threaten to make life miserable for them just because they're Christians. And so there are reasons to be troubled here, and their spirits are struck with dread. Will there be a knock at the door? Will they lose their job? Will they be blacklisted or killed? We can imagine how all this worry harms the heart. It's an assault on the heart, that heaviness of anxiety that drags us down emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. Like we might think of Nabal's reaction to Uh, The news from Abigail. The scriptures say he was struck with such a terror that his heart died within him so that it became like a stone. Or the state of those in Rahab's city um, when they heard that the army of the Lord was marching and that city was next in their path. They were headed right for them. And Rahab told the spies that when they heard of this, she says, our hearts melted within us and everyone's courage failed because of you for the Lord God for the Lord God your God is God in the heavens and on earth below so where does our courage come from how can we have a steadfast courageous heart in the presence of enemies well we drive out fear with fear we drive out the fear of man that grips your heart with the fear of the Lord like the psalmist says, In God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can mankind do to me? How can the fear of man remain or control us if we are habitually, habitually remembering who and what Christ is? Is there any match for his power? How can the fear of anything remain or control us when we think about how there's no Adam in the universe that doesn't obey his command? There's no circumstance that's outside of his control. There's no virus, brethren, that is able to resist his sovereign will. And how many thoughts trouble us on a daily basis that could be mortified in an instant with such simple hope in Christ. What dreadful thoughts embed themselves in our souls that could not be rooted out by more of Christ in our hearts. Because if he is for us, who can stand against us? Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. These words are reminiscent of some that Peter would have heard uh, a bit ago, heard heard long ago before he wrote them. In Luke 12, our Savior says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. This is the Savior that said, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Honoring Christ dispels all fears. It gives the suffering Christian courage because the threats are very real. But he's able to face them knowing God gives strength to his heart. And so see then that the Christian's heart is calmed by a holy Christ. A Christ-filled heart rejects and drives out fear. That's the first expression we see of this heart. The second one is that a heart full of Christ will defend hope. It says, make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Now, there are a lot of stages to a child's development, a lot of wonderful, enjoyable stages. You want to be there when they take their first step. But there comes a certain point where the the child starts talking It's not just coups anymore and not just babbling, but putting words together. And that's a significant stage because it's substantial communication, right? At that point, you can now have them tell you what are they feeling? What are they hungry for? They can explain their owies. They can can tell you all kinds of things. And you might wonder, where's the off button at that stage? But... They, they learn to speak, and it's a wonderful thing because it's a core indication that things are developing well. Their growth is healthy, and they're well. If they are sick and have a sore throat, they don't talk so well. And when it comes to our spiritual health, when our hearts are growing in honor and love for Christ, what do our mouths do? They speak. What happens when we're, his, we're spiritually sick? We don't speak so well. Jesus says, for the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so what's the primary expression of sanctifying Christ in our hearts? We speak. Since Christ is Lord, we can't be silent. We must open our mouth. Now, sometimes it's not with our mouths that we testify to the world. Peter just told believing wives that their unbelieving husbands can be won without a word by their respectful and pure conduct. But we might think Peter, of all the apostles, knows the importance of opening your mouth to speak up. Peter, after all, failed to give a defense, he failed to utter a truthful or faithful word about Christ on that infamous night uh, of the Savior's arrest in the garden, in the courtyard. And so there's a time and place to speak up, and this is it. When we suffer, especially because of our testimony for Christ, we tend to get quiet and shrink into ourselves. We get intimidated and we don't like to suffer, but Peter says we have a moral obligation to speak. So what are we to speak about? Hope. It might be a bit surprising to find this word Here as the thing that Peter focuses on, what spiritual stronghold might we think we should take up arms to defend? How might we defend Christ? We might defend his truth. We might defend the scriptures. We might defend doctrine or the faith once delivered to the saints. But Peter has something different in mind than Jude. It's hope. The people of God have have always been a people of hope, so it's also not surprising. Ever since Eden, when God gave the ray of hope amidst cursing, the promise of God for a dragon slayer, a serpent crusher, a man-child who would come and defeat that evil, and Eve hoped that her firstborn son was this very one, Abel, and he was not but then to the hall of faith when we have these portraits of those who had an assurance of things hoped for to these believers in first Peter of the dispersion whom God had caused to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to the very end when we've waited for our blessed hope and the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ finally appears the hope of the gospel threads every longing and anticipation of the people of God throughout history. And so look with me briefly at hope from the Apostle Peter. Peter highlights uh, three, or I'm sorry, six aspects of hope. The first is in chapter 1, verse 3. It is simply hope through Jesus Christ. God has has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's a hope centered on Christ and his power. He has triumphed over sin in the grave and living and believing in him, we shall never die. It's a living hope because it gives us life and it motivates us, it propels us and, and even brings a smile to our face. It's an eternal hope in verse four, an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. It's hope, in, in other words, for yesterday, today, and the endless tomorrow. It's hope like any other, hope unlike any worldly hope, a hope that, that uh, doesn't have benefits that expire or get moldy. It'll never fail like when you go to use your credit card and you find out it's declined. It's never revoked or stolen. In chapter 1, verse 13, it's a gracious hope. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's an expectation that we will receive good from God, even though there's nothing in us that is worthy of it. We expect to reach heaven because God has reached down and given us his own son. And we joyfully anticipate eternal bliss that we've done nothing to earn in, in uh, verse 21, it's a confident hope. You are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. And what more sure foundation could you ask for than the unchanging character of an uh, almighty God? The grounds of our hope are nothing short of God's veracity, his eternality. Is a aseity, that is, he's all-sufficient in himself. His simplicity, his sovereignty, his holiness. And as Peter says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It's a confident hope. And it's even a personal hope in our passage. It is a defense of the hope that is in you. Calvin says, the confession which flows from the heart is alone that which is approved by God. It's, the one thing to identify, it's, it's one thing to identify the right answer, a theoretical answer, in other words. But it's another thing to be able to say, this is what actually gets me through hard times. This is the thing that I cling to when I have nothing else. I possess it. I cherish it. I know it as my own. That's what we are to speak about. And that's what a heart filled with Christ overflows with is this hope and so how are we to speak about it how are we to speak about this hope well there are two words here that can help us understand that the first word is make a defense apologia otherwise translated give an answer now this is typically a formal term. It's something that a lawyer might do standing before a magistrate and he is giving a defense of his client for his innocence. But are we standing before a judge here with Peter? Peter's describing answering anyone someone in the market, someone at your workplace, a police officer, or anyone. Anyone who asks, he says. It could be a variety of times and places. And so it's something that is meant informally. It's giving good reasons or simply just giving an answer. It's not something founded on emotions, but it's also not something that's so theologically dense that only a scholar could grasp it. It is logical. It's reasonable. It's intelligent. The second word is logos. It's give an account or give a reason. And as you know, Lagos is simply word. Jesus is the Lagos. He is the word. And it simply means word here. Can you give me a word on that? In other words, you can find Paul before Felix in Acts chapter 24 as he speaks about his faith in Christ. He gives an answer. It says, but as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come... Felix became frightened. And so there is Paul. He's discussing, he's explaining, articulating truths. He's talking intelligently about the doctrines of his faith. But there is a third word that that is helpful for us, and that's the word ask. Because what kind of asking is this? The, The closest parallel that I know is from the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is instructing his disciples about how to... Respond to hostility, and it's in Matthew chapter five, verse thirty-eight. And so we could even turn there and read that Matthew chapter five. Any time we can meditate on the beatitudes is a good time. Chapter five of Matthew, verse thirty-eight. You have heard that it was said, uh, "Do not." Excuse me. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. And then our word here, give to him who asks of you. And do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. And so there's possibly a demanding flavor about this word. It's possibly someone who's requiring this answer from you, demanding an answer. Um, perhaps not. Elsewhere, the, the word is used of a beggar who, who sits at the temple asking for alms. It's, it's merely a supplication and request. And so how do we, how do we speak about hope? Well, let's remember these believers were suffering and it wasn't for doing evil. It was for doing good that they were suffering. They were being slandered. They were being reviled for their good behavior in Christ. And so on the one hand, it's not that we are required to discuss and defend every article of the faith. It's, uh, as Calvin says, that they're being required only to show that their faith in Christ is consistent with genuine piety. That there is a rational explanation for why they're behaving the way that they are. There are good reasons for not repaying evil with evil and not reviling when reviled. There's good reasons for enduring suffering with joy. And it's, it all centers on hope in Christ. And so Peter says, if someone comes to you inquiring, you should be able to explain yourself why you believe what you believe or why you're doing what you're doing. There's a reason I have hope. Now, in this verse, we find the basis of Christian apologetics, right? The systematic defense of the faith. And so we might uh, develop such rational explanations into some very highly technical and complex argumentation like providing clear and robust arguments uh, to prove the existence of God but that's not really what is in view here except to say that this is about apologetics for the every man because at a base level can you just talk about your hope every Christian ought to be able to talk about the hope that they have in Christ they might give a very simple account of it. It might be nothing more than, I was blind and now I see. And that's often a very strong testimony in and of itself. Perhaps the most convincing kind. You might be well taught in a church like this for decades. And you might be able to weave in scripture and, and theological truths with personal experience. And, and even make a profound answer. But whatever it is, can you just say something about your hope? Maybe it's an explanation for why you have hope, but can't we also just say we have hope? If we're going to do that well, though, we need to uh, guard our mouth because the suffering Christian doesn't just grin and bear it. We sometimes want to withdraw. Uh, we We might not want to talk to anybody when we're suffering, or our mouth might be talking a lot. It might be, active with complaints and moans and grumbling um, when we ought to bear those very real pains and burdens silently to God in prayer. But when we speak to others, particularly unbelievers, the Christian mouth speaks graciously. It's It's full of hope and consolation. There is hope on the tip of its tongue, grace on its lips. The Christian mouth breathes out blessing instead of cursing. It's eager to discuss, to reason, to persuade about hope. And so think, I challenge you to think, are you a downer? Are you, a someone, are you someone who is, you're not negative all the time on the whole, but on the whole also, is your speech seasoned with hope? Do you, speak, do you speak like you really expect good from God? Or does Murphy's law trump the Lord's law? Or Paul's law in Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good. Oh, well, this, this thing I'm going to do, I probably won't work. Well, why? Does Psalm 1 not apply to you, the blessed man who delights in the law of the Lord? It says that he will be like a tree planted by streams of water. And you know what? In whatever he does, he prospers. That's the hope that we have in Christ. And so may God grow us in the fruit of the Spirit, not to be... A downer, not to be negative in our speech, but to conform us to Christ, that we might guard our hearts. So that's a mouth that is ready with reasonable hope. It's a, a heart that defends hope. And now I want to look at, at hope, uh, excuse me, a heart full of Christ that is ready. We're told to always be ready. Now, I'm not a sports person but I understand that being a goalie is considered the most strenuous position to play in hockey, or soccer for that matter. They're required to play the whole game with no breaks. They need incredible reflexes, quick reaction times. They need agility. It's the most mentally taxing position. They have to be vigilant and read every play and predict what's gonna happen next. They have to pay attention to how the puck is shot at the same time as they get in the right position to stop it. That's their whole job. And because of that, they're often the biggest factor in determining whether a team is going to win or lose. And always being ready is like this. It's a Boy Scout virtue. The Christian heart is full of Christ and it's ready at a moment's notice in any situation. Since Christ is Lord, in other words, you must be ready at any time. And if you're going to do that, You need wisdom and knowledge. You need to know your Bible. How are we going to give a response to anyone who asks, to all kinds of people? That means we need a heart uh, that is righteous, that ponders how to answer, like the proverb says. John Gill comments on this verse, and he says, It's not that every Christian should be capable of defending the gospel, either in whole or in part, with arguments and reasons in an in a disputatious and argumentative way or to give a a reason or argument for every particular truth, but he should be well acquainted with the ground and foundation of the Christian religion, at least with the very first principles of the oracles of God and to be conversant with the scriptures. This is uh, a calling for an intelligent grasp on our hope and then skill in presenting it. And so may we pray like Paul that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened and so that you may know what is the hope of God's calling in Christ. May we seek God for that wisdom, to to know a word fitly spoken that we might discern the most fitting answer to someone who asks. It's our one central focus a heart that is filled with christ a heart that is ready at all times to defend the gospel we might find ourselves more ready and and passionate to defend other things maybe it's our own pride our own reputation maybe it's our nation's constitution western values conservative ideals there are many good and righteous things that a Christian can support and defend. But here is a divinely inspired prerogative which should thoroughly mark Christians in desperate times. They are first and foremost defenders of hope. And this hope that we possess is a treasure to be taken out every morning and handled and admired and cherished. It ought never to be far from our thoughts. We ought to be resolved to carry it everywhere, even to our graves. And so, as I came to this this verse, I considered, am I to be waiting in my life for someone to come to me and say, Joe, you know, there's something different about you. Could you give me an answer for the hope that is within you? Have you ever had someone come to you and ask ask for that? Because I never have. But it's not about waiting for one person to ask you, any specific question we're always to be prepared in a sense you ask me anything as a christian and i'm going to turn it into this i'm going to speak about hope i'm going to have some word about hope and there are challenges to be ready in in this sense even when the stakes are high we can be bad at preparing or or doing or or being ready i've been thinking about getting a backup generator for our house For years now, and I still haven't done it. But I know the moment the power goes out next, I'm going to regret not having taken those precautions. And it's easy to push off and minimize the stakes. And even when there's a pressing need, we can delay getting ready. I mean, have you ever procrastinated? You know what that's like. And laziness threatens our readiness. And fearfulness threatens our readiness. Our strength is small and fails in the day of adversity. And then we have no capacity during our trials for anything but languishing until it passes. But the Christian ought to keep his knees bent so that even during painful trials, we're able to springboard into the gospel to speak of our hope in Christ and that in a gentle and patient manner. Our motto ought to be, be prepared. And so, in in closing, by way of application, we face similar intimidations, I think. Peter was writing to conscientious Christians who were seeking to live virtuously to the glory of God. They wanted to live peaceful and quiet lives. And they kept getting flack for it. They were viewed as infamous. And hushed tones, if you will, fell on conversations. You know, he's a Christian. And they, they were slandered about practicing sin. And the state of our times also is that Christians are hated by many and Christian beliefs are deemed taboo. Some say we're guilty of promoting violence, hatred, bigotry. We go against the grain of accepted norms and, uh, and ideologies. We dishonor popular religious rites and months, if you will. Let the reader understand. So, if we were asked about this, may we not stay silent? but testify in favor of Christian religion. These believers had to make it evident to the world to reason with it that they are far from true wickedness. And I I don't think Peter means that they literally ask you about your hope. I think that's effectively what they're asking about. What it will sound like, what their questions will sound like, is questioning what you're doing or not doing Because they think that it's evil. They believe that it's wickedness. And if you're going to honor Christ. By being contrary to the acceptable standards of the day. It's going to cost you. If you're going to keep a good conscience before God. It's going to cost you. Why would you turn down that promotion? Why don't you just get the vaccine? Why will you die? Can't you just bow to Caesar? Why are you so positive all the time? Why won't you just wear the rainbow pin like the rest of us? And it challenges us to think why we would take stands and make the choices we do. Is it because it's the conservative thing to do? Is it because it's traditional and that's the way that I was raised? Why don't we maximize opportunities that we might have for people? And instead of pleasant responses that are really rather quick and and vapid, capitalize on them for the gospel's sake. Do you really think Christ is Lord? Then say something. Hey, that's my right. Free speech, pal. You can't make me wear something I don't agree with versus, oh, I could never do that. You see, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I can't do that with a good conscience before God. Tomorrow, you might get asked, how are you doing? How was your weekend? And so be ready. Find a way, whatever it is, Find your way to give a word about your Christian hope. We face a similar intimidation, but we have the same hope rooted in Christ. Peter tells them that suffering is God's will, and so they ought to suffer God's way. Our way of suffering is often striving against it until we're free, or doing everything we can to prevent it so it never happens to us. But God would have us to be ready To be courageous when it comes. Gentle, patient, reverent. And so may our hearts be fuller with this love. And may we have a proven record of conditioning our hearts for Christ and not letting them run away with us when trouble comes. And my time is just about spent. But I do want to challenge you to think about why hope needs defending. And even in our day, when... Hope is in short supply, and hope is under attack from every direction. Just like when this letter was written, suffering and fear threaten it. Loss, drudgery, depression, overdose, death, purposelessness, emptiness, tediousness, bleakness, they all make their assault on hope. And it's been said that children are our future, and if hope concerns Our future, then we are neglecting, abusing, corrupting, and killing our hope in horrific ways. These are not hopeful times, brethren. Did you know the planet is dying and we only have a few years to save it? But all we have to do is end the human race in order to do so? And people buy into this. And that's no message of hope. Immorality is parading through our streets and our libraries. Pleasure is empty. Identity is lost. Life is meaningless and boring. Cheap hope is hyped up and doled out only to slip through fingers like sand. We've rejected God's word and hope seems to flicker and fade. And so if you were in a submarine at the bottom of the ocean, what would you say? What would fill your mouth? Bitterness? Regret? Emptiness, would you have anything to say whatsoever when you face imminent death? Where is your hope? Has it been dashed on the rocks of broken promises, empty pleasures, bankrupt investments? There is yet hope for you, a hope that never fails. It's offered by the unchangeable and everlasting God. It is a hope for the best of times and the worst of times, A hope that is robust and stable, that deals in certainties and not possibilities. Certain peace with God, your creator. The forgiveness of sins that are all forgotten. Certainty of God's blessing now and forevermore. And so go to Christ, the foundation of our hope. Go to Christ that he might purify your heart and put hope within you. Brethren, be ready. Do not fear Do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ in your hearts, always being ready to give a defense for the hope that is within you. And now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, may he encourage your hearts and strengthen them in every good work and word. Let's pray. Our God, we bless you and thank you for your mercies towards us and how you have granted us a gift in the Lord Jesus Christ, how you have given us hope. We thank you for redeeming us when we were in darkness, for delivering us out of bondage and bringing us, causing us to be born into this living hope. We ask that you would bless it to each one of our hearts and that we might be fuller of Christ.